Hey guys, this is Rick Godwin, pastor of Summit Church here in San Antonio. Thanks for joining us today. You know, we're excited to have you on our podcast. Our goal is to inspire you and to challenge you and help everyone realize their full potential in Christ. Now enjoy the message. The store has opened in New York City that sells new husbands. A woman can go and choose a husband there, and among the instructions at the entrance is a description of how this store operates. You can visit this store only once. It has six floors, and the value of what they sell increases as the shopper goes up each floor. So the shopper can choose any item from any particular floor or may choose not to take something and go up to the next floor. But you cannot go back down except to exit the building. So a woman goes to the husband's store to find a husband. On the first floor, the sign reads, Floor 1, these men have jobs. Well, she's intrigued, but continues to the second floor where that sign reads, Floor 2, these men have jobs and love kids. That's nice, she thinks, but I want more. So she continues upward. The third floor reads, floor three, these men have jobs, love kids, and are extremely good looking. Wow, she says, but she feels compelled to keep going. So she goes to the fourth floor, and a sign reads, floor four, these men have jobs, love kids, are drop dead good looking, and help with housework. Oh, my Lord, she said. I can hardly stand it. Still, she decides to go to the fifth floor. And that sign reads, floor five, these men have jobs, love kids, are drop-dead handsome, help with the housework, and have a strong romantic streak. She is so tempted to stay. But she goes on to the sixth floor. And the sign reads, floor six, you are visitor 31,456,012. and 12. There are no men on this floor. This floor exists solely as proof women are impossible to please. <laughs> come on, come on. As Larry the cable guy says, come on, you know that's funny. <coughs> well, we're in a series, Ordinary Turned Extraordinary. How God uses ordinary, less than ordinary people, people you'd never pick, people you'd never give a second look to, to occasionally do something extraordinary. Remember we looked at Rahab, a Canaanite pagan prostitute, and how God came and used her to help the nation of Israel. And then we looked at a man whose age defined him, Father Abraham, and how God used the old man to change history and the world. And we said, you're not too bad, you're not too fallen, you're not too far from God. You're not too wrong in a race. You're not with a bad background or whatever circumstances you fall in. You are just right, rich or poor, for God to come to you and use you in a moment to do something extraordinary or do something for someone that has an extraordinary repercussion. You just never know. But nobody in this room or watching online is beneath the help of God at any time. Don't count yourself out. 
Don't listen to the crowd. Now today I'm going to use another girl who's extremely ordinary, and she's a pagan, and her name is Ruth. Back a few weeks ago, we had a series on hope, and I threw her in as a hope bringer. This is a different application, but it's the same girl. So some of it you will remember from the book of Ruth. And she is known for her loyalty. She is a loyal, committed hero. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kelon. They were Ephraimites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Well, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kelion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to go back home. With her two daughters-in-law, she then left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they all cried aloud and said, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who would then become your husbands? No, no, no. Go back home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. By the way, if you're old and single, you ain't too old. They have a husband. Cheer up. You never know. Might be in this room. You just don't know. Well, even if I, even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Probably not a chance, my daughters. It is more bitter for me in my situation than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. By the way, don't blame God when trouble comes. In this world, you will have tribulation. Some of it you cause. Don't give the devil credit and certainly don't blame God every time something bad happens because we live in a fallen world. He didn't cause, he didn't bring bad to her. Well, stay with me. So, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. So go back with Oprah. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and I will be there buried. May the Lord deal with me, and severely so, if anything but death separates you and me. This is she recognizes this as a divine connection. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her no matter what, she stopped urging her to go back. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. 
When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of their return. And the women explained, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, that's her perspective, okay? Nothing could be further from the truth. Watch your mouth. This looks bad, but God's right in the middle of it, okay? They just don't see it yet. It's amazing when we look back over our lives how we can look at a real bad patch in our road and say, wow, I can see how God orchestrated that to bring me here, to bring me to this place. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Okay, well, we're now on our third week, Ordinary Turned Extraordinary, a series in which we've been looking at how God uses some absolutely less than ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. People like Rahab we've already looked at. Old people like Abraham. These were, for the most part, just run-of-the-mill type people like you, like me. And yet God chose them for a moment in history for some heroic or amazing act of faith or service. And more often than not, God called these individuals in critical moments. So today, this morning, let me share with you another one of these amazing stories, the story of Ruth. And like some of the characters that we've studied already in the past Sundays, Ruth is not somebody who on the surface you would ever consider to be a hero material. I think of some of the more well-known fictional heroes that we all grew up with, the Marvel characters, the DC comic type of heroes, Superman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, and it's easy to understand why they're considered not just heroes. No, no, no. They are super heroes because they have superpower. Superman, he's faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And there's Spider-Man. He's got those spider instincts that can shoot webs out of his wrist and swing from building to building. Obviously, abilities that we all long for. <laughs> no, Spider-Man, I don't want to swing around a building. And, of course, one of my favorites is Wonder Woman. Back in the comics, remember, she's got a cool, invisible jet. She's got flashy bracelets that can deflect bullets. She has a golden lasso that she ties up men with so they tell the truth. What woman wouldn't want that? <laughs> these, these types of superhero powers. I mean, she's got style and she's got strength. All these types of heroes... It's obvious why they're considered heroes. Well, not so with Ruth. Ruth possesses no extraordinary physical strength. She can't fly. She has no fancy bracelets. And although she can spin yard into cloth, she certainly can't spin a web. And once again, we have in this story some individual who is very, very ordinary, minority, despised by the nation of Israel, cast-offs, outcast, unacceptable, and yet God chooses her for extraordinary purposes. And she becomes a hero in the kingdom of God. I say it again. God will love, like, and be gracious to people you don't like. And you just have to suck it up. Too bad. 
See, you think he's keeping score. He says, all your good works are like filthy rags to me. That's, I'm not being nice to you because of all your good works. I'm being nice to you because that's who I am. I'm being gracious to you because that's who I am. That's it. So I call Ruth the loyal hero because of all the characteristics she has, it's this character of loyalty, her heart of commitment that makes her who she is and the hero she will eventually become. So let's take a look at this characteristic this morning and follow very closely in the story of Ruth how loyalty comes to save the day. Good question to ask yourself. Would you consider yourself loyal? Would your best friends consider you loyal? You really won't know till they have a bad day or a scandal. So we read earlier from Ruth chapter 1, verse uh, 1 through verse 24, it pretty much set up the scene for the story. That pretty much is the scene. Let me highlight quickly, the book of Ruth is only four chapters. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. Four chapters. So you can read it in five minutes. Go home and read the rest of the story. It's quick, but it's really good. And as short as it is, it's rich with details and one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture. So you're not going to want to pass up on that. Well, back to chapter 1. The book of Ruth begins in perhaps one of the most dismal ways you could possibly imagine. And we can see from the very beginning, the story that we're reading ain't no fairy tale. Verse 1 says this story took place in the days when the judges ruled. Biblically, scholars tell us that that would have placed the story somewhere between 1400 to 1100 B.C., before Christ. But more importantly, the Bible tells us in Judges 21, verse 25, that in those days, there's no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of like driving on 1604. In other words, it was perhaps one of the most evil times in Israeli history. No rules, no regulations, lawless people just did whatever they wanted. So no wonder verse 1 also says there was a famine in the land, which meant no food, you know, and it's not explicit, but it is implied that this famine was sent as punishment for this apostate evil time for Israel. And so people began to move elsewhere to search for food. Now, one of them is this guy named Elimelech, and he goes to a place called Moab. And you have to understand that we're not even out of verse one, and the story's already full of details and thick with irony. This Elimelech is from Bethlehem. And I don't know if you know it or not, but Bethlehem actually means house of bread, Bethlehem. And I pause a moment to remind you, where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. And what was he called? The bread of life. So he's born right here in the house of bread. Now, the irony is, although it is the house of bread, there is no bread in this place called the house of bread. It's a family. So of all the places, where does God, uh, Imelech, go in search of bread? Moab. Now, that's irony because Moabites and Israelites were mortal enemies, hated each other. But we see here that when you're hungry, you have to place your historical differences aside. So here we have the beginning of the story of Ruth. Evil, lawless, famine, and desperation. Not a very pretty picture. But believe it or not, it gets worse. <laughs> The Bible goes on to introduce five other characters, Naomi, who's Imelech's wife, Malon, and Kilion. They're their sons. 
and Orpah, and finally Ruth. The two sons are amazing, just an insight. If you know anybody planning to have a baby anytime soon, make sure they don't name their child Mahlon or Kilion. They are horrible names. They mean literally sickly and dying. I mean, can you imagine naming your kids this and having to introduce them to people? Uh, these are my two boys. Here's swine flu and walking pneumonia. <laughs> Watch the names. It's pretty much the gist of these names. Not great names at all, but then again, they're not in a very good situation to begin with. So the story goes on, and now we're not even past the third verse in chapter 1, and Elimelech dies. And the Bible doesn't say why or how. He's just dead. And now Naomi is suddenly left with only her two sons. Well, they go and marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And don't forget that the Moabites are enemies of the Israelites. I'm not sure how well that fared with their mom, but I bet it wasn't good. But it's safe to guess there may have been some tension in their relationship. Well, nonetheless, they marry. And 10 years later, Melon and Kilion also die. <laughs> not a big surprise considering what they were named, all right? But now, what was once a bad situation has gotten even worse. It's dark, it's bleak, it's a hopeless scene for Naomi, and Elimelech dies, and so do his sons. So can you imagine what that must be like, living in a foreign land, losing your husband, losing your sons, losing your security? It's bad enough you're hungry and searching for food that the famine has now left the uh, uh, people and the economy so bad that you have to turn to Moab, of all places, to go for help. But to lose your whole family, uh, that's not a fairy tale. Now, if you're Naomi, your heart would be crying out, I'm sure, in severe pain, and you'd be asking, if not thinking it, or shouting with clenched fists to heaven, at least with bitter tears, where is God in all this pain? Where are you, Lord? Now, for any of you that have ever faced tragedy or you've lost a loved one, that question is not unfamiliar. Now, some people will answer, there is no God. Others will answer that God can work through even the greatest suffering, and it's true. In C.S. Lewis's book called The Great Divorce, there's a character in it named George MacDonald who says, ah, the saved, what happens to them is best described as the opposite of a mirage. What seemed when they entered it to be the veil of misery turns out when they look back to have been a well. And where present experience saw only salt deserts, memory truthfully records those pools weren't filled with salt. They were full of water. Now, that's pretty heavy stuff. But what Lewis is intimidating here, intimating through it, he's basically saying that God has a funny way of working through suffering to bring about incredible blessing in the end. Anybody remember Job? My Lord. And yet it ends up. And God restored Job and doubled all that he had. I don't know about you. It's how we finish the counts, okay? not where you are in the story. So in essence, this is, the, this is truth that unfolds in the book of Ruth, point after point in the story. Now, remember I said earlier the book of Ruth is a fabulous book. It's short, but it's rich with content about what life with God is like in the shadows, in left turns, in the detours. 
It's a book about how God works in mysterious ways to perform his wonders. It's a book for people who wonder where God is when there are no visions, no dreams, no prophets, no miracles. It's a book for people who wonder where is God when tragedy after tragedy attacks their faith. By the way, God's where he's always been if you're a believer. He said, I'll never leave you and never forsake you. He was in the shadows watching over Job when Job felt alone on that ash heap. But God was right there. I write on him. And he's on it with you. It's a book for people who wonder how God could use their ordinary lives of faith to do something that had a great result and ultimately touch their world. It may not seem very convincing at this point, but it's a book of hope and be encouraged by it. I don't think we should ever have a day we might feel hopeless, but we better renew our minds to know, oh no, I got plenty of hope. God's still alive. I, there is always hope for me. So where's God in this story of tragedy and darkness and despair? Well, short story, even shorter, God's in the life and heart of this character named Ruth. And this is what happens in chapter 1, verse 6. Naomi hears that back home, famine's over. She said, the Lord has come to the aid of his people, providing food for them. Good news. So Naomi decides, I'm going back to Bethlehem, the land of Judah, and tells her two daughters-in-law, you guys go back to your families, get new husbands, and seek another chance at a full and happy life. But Orpha and Ruth at that moment insist, no, we want to stay with you, Naomi. We're connected to you. Naomi's response is read here in verses 11, 12, and 13. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Obviously not. Go back home, daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for the rest of that number of years? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me in my situation than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now, Naomi is speaking out of the pain of her heart. She, that's how she feels, see? In the midst of hopelessness, feeling the bitter slap of tragedy, she nevertheless raises a pretty good argument She seems to be saying to the girls, girls, you suffered enough already by being part of my family. Don't put yourself through anymore. That's kind of virtuous, actually. As for me, hopeless. No good can come out of following me back to Judah. Can't you see God is against me? She's going to eat every one of these words. And if you said them, you're going to eat them too. No hope for me. Really? Hang on for the ride. At this point, Naomi can't see God working in her life. She's blind to the pool of water masquerading as a desert wasteland of hopelessness. That's all she can see. And as far as Oprah is concerned, that's the other daughter. Naomi's bitter speech is convincing to her. Yeah, I think my odds are better if I just go back home and hook up with another husband. Ruth, on the other hand, is not one bit swayed. And she offers her own speech, and this is what she says in verse 16. See, she realizes God put us together. It sure isn't good right now, and I don't even know what the future holds, but I am not breaking this connection no matter how bad it gets. So she says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, 
And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. Wow. I don't know about you, but I love her speech a lot better than Naomi's speech. Ruth is declaring her undying devotion to her mother-in-law. She recognizes a divine connection. She's a pagan, but she's not breaking that connection no matter what happens. She's expressing her loyalty and her heart of commitment to Naomi. And she seems to be saying, it doesn't matter how much you've suffered. It doesn't matter how much more you might suffer. And it sure doesn't matter if I suffer because of my connection with you. My place is with you. I will be with you till death prevents me from being with you anymore. No more. I will not leave you. I'm going with you. Wow, I think about that. A friend loveth at all times. Now, we have hundreds of acquaintances in here. Not, that's not friend. We're friendly. But you understand, this, it's something special when God hooks you with somebody. I can remember Sandy and Randy Ross and maybe Jim Williams can remember way, way back in our old location, a very famous guy in our state had a mega church in the shadow of Baylor University. He was married with a couple of kids. He's brilliant. We had had him teach and preach in our little startup place uh, back in those days. And make a long story short, he, he had some immoral affair with a student. And as a result, the board fired him. It was all over the papers. It was all over Texas. It, it, it was big news, big news. And everybody forsook him. Nobody, nobody helped him. Well, I knew who he was from being with James Robinson. He had spoken at many of the conferences. So I said, well, I'm nobody, but I'll call him. So I called him, and he, he kind of broke down on the phone. And I says, I'm going to get with the board, and we're going to do something to try to help you. Well, the board agreed, and we paid that man's salary for one year. We picked him up, brought him down here. We paid for ministry. We took him on ministry trips. We included him in everything we did to restore that man. And what's kind of fun, funny to me, was that Christians that had my CDs and tapes back then, we didn't have CDs, we had tapes back then, sent them back in the mail because we were associated with helping this man. They wanted no part of it and wanted their money back for the ministry materials. <laughs> I thought, way to go, church. I'm sure that's what Jesus would do. <laughs> but see, you don't leave a friend. Now, you don't condone their behavior. Jesus never condoned wickedness or sin. And then I have another friend in another nation that literally changed the church world around the, around the globe and put many people in high places because of the platform. They, they obviously impacted the whole world. And over the years of starting churches, planning churches, uh, bringing hundreds of thousands to know Christ around the world, they just changed everything in the culture and then that person had a bit of a fall and a scandal, and amazingly, everybody left. Everybody was gone. And so we stayed with our friend and, and helped our friend and still doing so to this day. And I asked them, I picked out several people who were very prosperous now, had big platforms for ministry that had nothing until they got on that platform and were exposed to the world. Not one came to their aid to help them. Not one. That's loyalty expressed in the church of Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? 
I would never condone the bad behavior and be the first to say this is wrong or wicked. How can I help? How can we help you? And so just a couple of us stayed with this person and are with that person to this day, and we'll see how that plays out. But my shock was all the people that owe a debt to this person for all they've done for the whole world didn't do anything but either run or pick up a rock. Don't be that kind of a person. I want you to be safe in here. I want you to know there's still hope. I want you to know God is a God of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And when you read these stories in the Bible, there just isn't anybody so low God can't use them or pick them up and restore them and help them. There's hope for everybody in this room. Don't you count yourself out. Well, what an amazing and awesome demonstration of commitment from Ruth. Now, you have to remember once again, Ruth, so Moabite, and for her to go back with Naomi to Bethlehem to Judah would be putting her own life at risk. She could be murdered. She's heading back into hostile territory, lawless country, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, and now she's going to be this foreigner, this pagan, this immigrant living in a strange land that doesn't accept Moabites among strange people. What guts this girl's got. But ultimately, she didn't care because for Ruth, this ordinary Moabite pagan woman, her loyalty and commitment to Naomi was of utmost priority, whatever it cost. And it's through her loyalty, God's going to end up doing extraordinary things through her. She didn't have a clue this could happen. Neither did Naomi. Chapter 1 ends with this verse. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And I love the stark contrast of that verse to the opening verse of the chapter, the closing verse and the opening verse. Now, originally, the people of Israel were living in an evil, desperate, lawless, bleak time, famine having struck the land, no employment. But the closing verse paints a very different picture, a picture of hope, a picture of harvest. And what's more, there's this image of these two widows who lost everything, but there's a sense that something's about to happen. As Earl Roberts used to say, something good is about to happen, and right in the middle of all hell. And that's the sense that God is at work, and through all that pain and all that tragedy, God is going to do something to recoup this thing. This is what's fun. There's, there is an answer. It's just a glimpse at the end of the chapter to the question, where's God in all my pain? Well, according to the rest of the story of Ruth, according to the remaining three chapters, we see clearly God is actually very close by. He was very close by watching over Job when Job had no clue anybody was near him except his wife who was telling him to hurry up and die so she could collect on the insurance, I guess. God's presence is manifested in the heart of an ordinary Moabite pagan woman named Ruth and her amazing display of loyalty and commitment. So God is present in the generosity of a kinsman redeemer by the name of Boaz, who becomes so impressed with loyalty of Ruth and commitment to his in-law, uh, Naomi, he offers to marry her. So God is present in the hope of a child named Obed that's going to be born to Ruth through Boaz, who then becomes the father of Jesse, who then becomes the father of David, the greatest king Israel ever had, and of course, an ancestor in the genealogy of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Holy Moses! Who could see that? 
you can help somebody who has fallen or somebody who's an outcast or somebody who's a minor. You could do one thing. God could use you in a moment to bring them to Christ or to help them in generosity or to encourage them or bring them in and connect them to people. And that person could go on and change the world. You, the ordinary, could be used to touch somebody who does the extraordinary just as much as God could do something extraordinary through ordinary you and me. It works both ways. Where is God? Well, God's in the ordinary moments of our lives, our everyday lives, working extraordinary things that sometimes we can't see. Later we can see it. Later we can look back and see it. But now God is going to work through our relationships that are so should be important to us. He's going to work through random acts of generosity and kindness of these pagan strangers through faith that moves mountains and fills dry pools with water. Amazing God. God was with Naomi, and she had no clue. And God was with Ruth, and she had no idea how God was about to change the world through her loyalty to Naomi. At the moment, they didn't see it. And of course, as ordinary as you and I may be, God's with us. God's called, you know, and we're looking for the moment when trumpets blast out of heaven, angels appear, the skies rip open. Nah, it's usually just in simple day-to-day something where you'll do something or say something or give something, and you have no clue what that's going to unlock. You just don't know how that'll either help your children or you or somewhere along the road of life. So God's calling all of us to be available to do extraordinary things in God's name. Amen? That's a good thing. Don't you ever underestimate it. Let God use you. Don't run away. Bring people, people who have fallen, people who are broken, people who have been scandalized. God's not afraid of them. God's not intimidated. God took our shame. God took our stain when he he identifies with me as a brother. He'd never forsake me. And so if God will identify you and your nastiness, how come you can't be identified with somebody who has now gone through a bit of a fall or scandal and give them hope and love and restoration and forgiveness? We don't need grace unless we need forgiveness. And most of us don't realize how much mercy we need. And if you deal with people, if you got to make a mistake, make a mistake on the side of mercy. Jesus said, I will have mercy not sacrifice. So if you're going to screw it up, screw it up on mercy. That's most like Jesus. Well, what if they don't respond? What? That's not your problem. You can be an agent of Jesus for somebody, just like Ruth was. And God could use somebody you wouldn't pick to be the one who encourages you or helps you or connects you to something. You never know how they're going to help you. I've had the president of the largest brewing company in Texas called me on a cell phone in a dark moment many, many years ago on a rainy night in London because I had prayed for his brother's daughter who had been involved in an accident uh, with a boater and killed somebody. And little did I know that God would use him seeing that little simple act of prayer and checking on him to come back to help me. No clue. No clue. So be open. Get a bigger picture about God. I think our picture's too small. I had a journalist ask me one time, do you think you've gotten more liberal as you've gotten older? I said, no, I just think God got bigger to me. I think I had God contained. He, he only loves Republicans and he'll only bless you 
and he doesn't like these kind of people, and God won't do anything unless you do this. And I thought, nonsense. He can make something out of dirt. He can do anything. If he can use Rahab, a hooker, he can use me. If he can use a 90-year-old man, Abraham, 100 years old, he can use me. He can use you, Ruth the Moabite. I haven't even picked a nice person yet, and God can do extraordinary things. Hey, thanks again for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and share it with a friend. Follow me by visiting the links in the description. I'm praying today that God richly blesses you this entire week.